I'm Carol Coletta, and this is Night Cities. Detroit was once the Silicon Valley of America. Innovations propelled a booming auto industry, Motown synthesized and popularized a new form of music, and social change poured out on race and workers' rights. In his new book, Once in a Great City, David Moranis has captured this story of Detroit of the early 60s. Born in Detroit, David is an associate editor at the Washington Post and a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and best-selling author. David will appear at the Miami Book Fair Sunday, November 22nd. David, your inspiration to write Once in a Great City came from a Chrysler commercial. What was it about that TV ad that inspired you to write this glorious book? Well, you're right. It was the first imported from Detroit ad by Chrysler. And it didn't inspire me to buy a Chrysler, but it did to write the book. Uh, I was watching it uh, at halftime of the Super Bowl in 2011, and all of the iconic images of Detroit on the screen, the Joe Louis Fist, the Diego Rivera murals of Detroit industry, the Fox Theater, the, the rapper Eminem driving through the streets of Detroit and walking into the Fox Theater and rising, watching a black gospel choir rising in song. All of that hit me in a way that I wasn't expecting. I, I actually choked up watching it. And the reason is I was born in Detroit. My earliest memories are there of the Bob Lowe boat and Hudson's department store. Um, and all of these great early memories of my childhood uh, just sort of got me thinking about Detroit, what I could do to honor that city, not just because of what it meant to me, but because of what it meant to the nation. And that's how I started thinking about this book. What is particularly fascinating to me about the book is that it covers only 18 of what appeared to be the most glorious months in Detroit history, the fall of 62 to the spring of 64. Detroit was riding high. It had, as you put it, an intoxicating buzz. Describe Detroit during that period. It really was magical. And my my sort of uh, style of, of research and re- writing is to I use the metaphor setting my oil rig up somewhere and drilling down as deeply as I can. And I chose that period to write about because you could see all of the major forces that helped shape Detroit at their peak during that period. Uh, the uh, auto industry was selling more cars than ever before. Motown was in its early creative stage and bringing its wonderful soundtrack to the nation. Walter Ruther and the United Auto Workers were at their peak and really influencing not only the rise of the working class to the middle class, but also helping out with uh, civil rights in a very profound way. And civil rights was very important in Detroit. It was that summer that Martin Luther King came to Detroit and delivered his I Have a Dream speech before he did in Washington. So in all of those ways, I wanted to capture what Detroit gave to this country, at the same time showing the shadows of what was to come. And as you say, there were shadows of what was to come. There were signs of decay. By 1963, I thought it was interesting, there were already projections of population decline by 1970. What were the primary factors that were driving this projection of Detroit's decline? Well, I think it was a sort of a perfect storm in Detroit. You know, a lot of it was being played out in other cities in the country, but but not quite in the same uh, intense way as in Detroit. So you had a reliance on one industry, the auto industry, which by the 1960s was already moving out of Detroit, um, 
not only in terms of factories, but also sort of emotionally. Uh, you had a racial tension that had been going on for, uh, sadly, for decades in Detroit, going back to a race riot during World War II and a fight over jobs and housing. You had well-intentioned urban planning that nonetheless had some negative effects in Detroit, uprooting the traditional black communities um, with the freeways going right through uh, Black Bottom and Paradise Valley and really them never being the same again. Um, and also those that entire city freeway system making it easier for white flight. So I think in combination, of those factors helped lead to Wayne State University sociologists predicting that Detroit would lose a half million people per decade from then on and, and really the, the most productive taxpayers. You mentioned race, and you vividly described the racial tension in Detroit in the 60s. I, I love some of the stories you tell about um, significant moments in in uh, in the racial narrative of Detroit. What role did race play? Explain the way race played a role in Detroit's population decline. Well, I think race is still and always has been the great American dilemma, and it certainly played out in Detroit. Detroit had a very vibrant African-American middle class. Um, the largest NAACP chapter in the country was there. Um, a lot of prominent lawyers and doctors came out of Detroit and politicians. Um, but but the, 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 the uh, demographic factor in Detroit that made it difficult to some degree is that so many of the people who came to work in Detroit came up from the South, um, African-Americans in the Great Migration from Mississippi, Georgia, Alabama, and and whites from Appalachia, and and the, the, those people had jobs uh, th through the the great period of the arsenal of democracy when Detroit was so vibrant in terms of the defense of World War II, up through the late 50s, and then as the jobs and and housing started to change, the the tensions only increased, so that by the 1960s uh, it had been playing out for a couple of decades and. And really, I don't think Detroit, you know, it was a fight over open housing laws. It was a fight over uh, the police department's treatment of African Americans. There were so many places where those tensions were just right at the boiling point. You know, and that same story played out in so many cities that then lost population. And, and all the factors you say that contributed to population decline in Detroit, I think, contributed to population and decline in, in so many other cities. But was it was it the manufacturing base, David? That uh, the was it the number of manufacturing jobs in Detroit that uh, that caused Detroit, I think, to suffer in ways that many cities uh, didn't. I mean, was it was that what made Detroit's situation more acute? Well, I think that I think that as I said, I think it was all of those factors combined in Detroit in a unique way. Um, with the one-company town aspect of it and the, the loss of ma manufacturing jobs in the auto industry playing a crucial role. Um, but but I don't think you can separate out um, those different factors having to do with race and demographics and geography and, and um, manufacturing. They all just sort of added up in Detroit to, to create this difficult situation. You, you made a point earlier that – the auto industry, even though it, it, it was selling more cars than Detroit was selling more cars than ever before during this period in the early yeah. 60s, um, you said manufacturing was begin, beginning to move away, but also 
emotionally the auto industry was beginning to move away. And and there was another emotional or symbolic moment uh, in Detroit that you capture in the book. I didn't know that Detroit was first in line, if you will, or at least in their minds, to get the Olympics that Mexico City eventually won. I was in Chicago when Chicago lost the its Olympic bid, and it really, you know, soon thereafter, Mayor Daley announced he wasn't going to run for mayor again. I, I think it was a real emotional blow. How much of a role, either real or symbolic, did that play in Detroit's decline? Well, I think a lot of people like you are surprised to hear that that Detroit almost got the Olympics in 68. But, in fact, Detroit had been a major player in the Olympic movement um, for most of the 20th century. It had been the, the U.S. candidate four times before that. And the decision of, for the 1968 Olympics was made in 1963 during the heart of the chronology of my book. And Detroit really thought it would get get them. This was their turn. Um and the fact that they lost out, I think, had a profound effect on the city. Uh, of course, it's counterfactual history to, to think about what if, what would have happened if Detroit had won those Olympics. Um, they certainly had uh, a, a very strong uh, a bipartisan support for those Olympics. Um, the governor of the state, George Romney, a Republican, the mayor of Detroit, Jerome Cavanaugh, a liberal Democrat, sort of Kennedy acolyte, um, all of the business leaders of the of the city were were in in unison in trying to get the Olympics and really feeling that this could bring Detroit into the the realm of a great um, world city. Um, so what would have happened if they had won it? Who knows in terms of the the economic boost? But but um, certainly uh, one can think about whether the fact that it was about to be on the world stage would have affected the way that the city's leaders handled the problems that were bubbling up leading to the riots of 1967. Would they have happened in the same way or at all had Detroit been uh, preparing for the Olympics? Uh, it's a question that you can't answer, but I think is a fascinating one to think about. It is fascinating. You, you mentioned uh, earlier Walter Ruther and his role uh, not only in moving uh, Americans into the middle class uh, as head of the United Auto Workers, but also the role he played in race. I thought it was interesting. You, you write uh, in your book, by 1963, bigness in the modern world had become uh, one of Ruther's central themes, big business, big labor, big government, big cities. How to accommodate that bigness and make it liberating instead of oppressive was his obsession. And it seems to me that, you know, we are still right in that in that struggle. He never figured it out, did he? No, and nor did the country. I mean, I think that you can say that the great society hopes of Lyndon Johnson, which Ruther supported entirely, did not figure it out. And, and it's failure or or judged failure um, to, to bring about the changes that, that it promised, I think um, led to a, a, a very strong backlash against bigness um, represented by Ronald Reagan and the conservatives in America for the next several decades. So uh, the bigness is still there in so many ways, and and it, it's, you know, you can't go back to the past, but, but trying to figure out how to deal with it in in ways that are are productive and liberating for the greatest number of people is is something that that uh, we're all still struggling with in you know in the cities and and in the country. You write that people 
tend to see what they want to see, comforted by the facts that support their vision. In 1963, what did Detroiters fail to see? You know, if we knew the answers of what went wrong in every city and how to, and the lessons of them, it'd be a magical world. But, but I think that the largest thing you can see is that there are a lot of decisions that were for short-term gain and, and not looking out for the long-term interests of the city. Um, so I think that, that the, yes, there, there was this bright shining light in Detroit then, um, but it was actually a dying light. And so the, the obvious one for the auto industry, uh, there are two. One is that they didn't see Japan coming and the whole uh, need for smaller cars and more effective uh, manufacturing. Um, that that would bring about. They also didn't see how important the city of Detroit was to their to their own sense of of, of health and being, and that the city was really the heart of of the auto industry, and they had to pay attention to that as well as to what else they were doing. Um, I think that Mayor Kavanaugh and the uh, and the Johnson administration didn't see the you know they were trying to deal. Well, Kavanaugh and his police chief were trying to deal with that. It's seemingly intractable issue of race, but they didn't see how deeply rooted that that's, that problem was and how difficult it would be to overcome. You also write about the insulation of executives at Ford. They, you said they belonged yeah. to the same club. They played the same games. They sent their kids to the same school. Is that, is that isolation? Is that talking, to, talking only to ourselves one of the reasons Detroit failed to see the future? I think so. I think particularly because of the fact that it was, it was so homogenous and it was such a one-company place that they're talking to themselves and failing to see different perspectives and different and diverse ideas um, led to this sort of ingrown sensibility that is that is counterproductive. I, you know, I think that that that's one lesson that that um, corporate America certainly seems to have learned in a lot of different ways, and so have have leaders of cities, you know, you know, to bring about more diversity and, and less of that sort of closed world. Well, you'd like to think we've learned it. I, I'm not sure. Do you think people <laughs> in today's, you know, if you think about today's hot markets, the Detroits of today, San Francisco, uh-huh. Seattle, Austin, do you think they may be missing important signs that suggest an unexpected future? I do think we have a tendency, as I'm sure that in Detroit in the early 60s, the sense of, this growth will continue. This we will. We are on an upward tra- trajectory forever. I mean, there. We. I think we look at these cities: San Francisco, Seattle, Austin, D.C., and think, you know, life is good now, and it will be good forever for many of us. <laughs> well, maybe that's true. I mean, it's certainly that you know the that sort of optimism is part of the American spirit, and sometimes it, it's. Uh, it's unfounded optimism, especially when it's rooted in, in one sort of industry. Austin went through it several times before with, you know, as part of Texas and the oil industry. So it certainly should have learned that lesson now that it's got uh, the, all the tech business there, that you can't just rely on that. I think that, that in some ways, um, you know, Detroit has moved from, from sort of the symbol of a city of ruin to uh, a little bit of a city of hope. And, and although uh, there are a couple of major investors there who seem to be dominating the scene, like Dan Gilbert and Quicken Loans, the, the people that are coming into Detroit now are bringing a certain diversity that wasn't there before. I'm thinking especially of of the young people aged 22 to 36 who are flooding into the Midtown area um, and 
as foodies and techies and musicians and artists um and that sort of diversity of thought and of 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 business i think is what cities need david i i love the book Thank you so much for writing in, and thanks for being with us on Night Cities. We look forward to seeing you at the Miami Book Fair in late November. Oh, great. Well, thank you, Carol, and thanks for your interest. David Moranis is author of Once in a Great City. He will appear at the Miami Book Fair Sunday, November 22nd. You can follow us on Twitter at hashtag Night Cities and at C. Coletta. Sign up for our newsletter at nightfoundation.org forward slash podcast to get the five things you should know from this interview and others. You've been listening to Night Cities. I'm Carol Coletta.